You are listening to Vida Abundante. We have started a verse-by-verse study of the Gospel of Jesus Christ according to John. Here's Pastor Jonathan Gallardo. If you've been with us lately, if you haven't been with us, uh, we've been studying a lot of our our basis is found in verse 14, and what we've been discussing is this human nature of Jesus Christ, because the Word of God says that he became, that the Son of Man became flesh. So we've been given reasons uh, on why that needed to happen. The Latin phrase that comes to mind when we talk about this is what the theologian of the 12th century said when he said, cur Deus homo which means, why the God-man? And that's a big question that, in a certain reality, we need to kind of answer. Why did God become man? And last week, we discussed that the reason God became man was to restore the image of man back to its original purpose. That was reason number one. Today, we're going to be discussing reason number two, but I just wanted to remind you once more where we're at. So we're in... John chapter 1, and I'm going to read the section between 14 through 18 just to put us back into context. And it says, and the word became flesh. That's where we've stopped and we've kind of parked here for a couple of weeks. But then it keeps going. And dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, the glory of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks ranks me because he was before me. From his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. So as we've been discussing this, we parked in the beginning of these couple of words where we see the word has become flesh. And we've answered that question in four parts. We've discussed the first part, which I I mentioned earlier. And today, we're going to discuss the second part. And so in order to do this, what we've been doing is using the word of God to kind of interpret what scripture says. So there's one thing for us to try to impose our interpretation into the scripture, but it's another uh, deeper meaning when the word of God itself interprets itself. So the reason why we've been going to the book of Hebrews is to really lean on what this means. So keep your Bible open to the book of Hebrews or just keep your thumb on John. We'll, we'll glance at it a little bit more. But we're going to be spending most of our time in Hebrews chapter 2. So keep your Bibles open to Hebrews. And we're going to be using Hebrews to kind of help us build this framework. And Hebrews helps us answer this question on why God became man. Last week, God became man in order for for him to restore our original purpose. We just read in Psalm 8 that we were designed for dominion and we were designed to be co-regents or vice-regents with God and to exercise authority. But because of sin, that image has been flawed and has been destroyed. And now 
Jesus Christ has come to live a life of obedience, a life that you and I could never live, and he has accomplished that in order to bring us back or to restore us back to our original image. And that's why he had to become man. That's reason number one. Reason number two, we find in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 10. So I'm going to read this to you once more. In verse 10, I'm going to read three verses, 10 through 13. For it was fitting that he for whom and by whom all things exist in bringing many sons to glory should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell them your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children of God have give, has given me. So we'll stop right there. Why did God become man? Reason number two is in order to bring many sons to glory. Hebrews chapter 2 verse 10 answers that for us. It was fitting that for him who, who brought all things into existence would bring many sons to glory. Now what does that mean? So we're going to discuss this a bit today. I want you to realize the first aspect was to restore our image, to give us back that image of God so that we can be in his likeness once more. You got to think about that. If you were not in his likeness, then you were opposed to it, or you were completely opposite of his likeness. And so Jesus Christ, in being like us, flesh and blood and bone, became what we needed to live. He showed us the way to do it, and then when he dies... He restores that image back to us. And one day, we're going to live before God completely restored with the body that Jesus Christ himself in glory has. But now, he's bringing many sons to glory. But I want you to realize these words that, that are a little bit, that, that make us, that cause us to pause. For instance, in verse 10, we see, for it was fitting that he, for whom by all things exist, in bringing sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. So here we have this concept of it was fitting. Now, in, a, in simpler terms, what does that term mean? Fitting means it was suitable, it was right, it was proper. In, if you want to put it in a more basic context, it's proper for a gentleman to open the door for his wife or for his girlfriend. It is proper for a gentleman to open the, the door of a building. It is proper to eat turkey on Thanksgiving. I mean, it's, it's fitting. It, it fits the mold. It fits its intended purpose. And the writer of Hebrews is saying that the Son of Man, that Jesus Christ, it was fitting for him to do what? Well, go back to verse 9 in Hebrews. Look what verse 9 says. But we see him for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory. Now we could say, now we stop there, we're like, okay, that's good. He was crowned with glory. That's Jesus Christ. All of us can say amen to that. 
He was crowned and he's, he deserves glory. But then it keeps going. Crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death. I want you to think about that. And then it gets harder. So that by grace, the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. Verse 10 starts off by saying it was fitting for that to take place. What was fitting? That he tastes death. Not only that he tastes death, but that by God's divine plan and gracious plan, you see that word grace there? By that divine grace of God, it was ordained for him to do so. It was fitting. He was humbled in his humanity. Now we're going to discuss this a little bit more because I want you to understand the, 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 this purpose of, of restoring man to glory and what that means. But we have to get this out of the way to understand what Jesus is doing and what Jesus has done for you. He was humbled. It, when, when verse 9 says he was made lower than the angels, it's talking about the same likeness that you and I were. In Psalm chapter 8, it's referencing us. In Hebrews chapter 2, it's referencing Jesus Christ by saying he was made lower than the angels, by saying that in his humanity, he was not a spiritual being. He was not a phantom. He was not a spirit. He was not an angel because he didn't come to save angels. Are you and I angels? If you look at your, the person next to you, you'll be like, man, this guy ain't no angel. This guy is an opposite of an angel. But, but besides that fact, that's why you're in church and that's why we're all in church. We all need Jesus. But besides that, we have to understand that Jesus didn't come here to do his work for angels. There's no need for that. Jesus came to do his work for us. And that's why he is humbled. And in that state, it was fitting for him to live in that humble state of humanity. And by God's grace, taste death. Take on death for absolutely everyone. You and I will one day die physically. But Jesus takes upon himself death in the aspect of eternal death or spiritual death so that you and I won't have to face that in the negative sense. And like I mentioned before, on Wednesday nights, I have a Bible study here in Spanish, uh, and we've been focusing on hell and the eternal concept of hell and what that implies, and it's not a pretty sight. And so Jesus saves us from hell, saves us from an eternal conscious punishment. Now, that might seem a little bit like, oh, that's, that's weird, but you may not have been in our, in our study, so you may not understand what that implies, but, but that's what Jesus is basically bringing us from. He tastes death for everyone in his humble state, which means his humanity. You have to understand, when Scripture says that Jesus humbled himself, it wasn't just the fact that he, like, put himself down or, or kind of... Uh, gave himself a humble spirit. It was the fact that he was God and he took on our nature. It's the fact that he was perfect in all aspects and then he takes on our nature. 
a nature that feels, a nature that thinks, a nature that, 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 that feels pain, that gets sick, a nature that has to eat, a nature that, that has to go to the bathroom, a nature that, that, that is just, you and I understand it. And Jesus, in his humbleness, has to do that in order for him to bring sons to glory. Now, this is fitting for him because God designed this for him. And we're going to be celebrating Christmas in about a month or so. How many of you can say amen to that? Christmas is coming around. We've all got 93.9 on and we're celebrating Christmas and having fun. But the plan for that Christmas spirit isn't just the concept of the baby coming to the world and all of us celebrating. I mean, that baby is on his trajectory to die. You have to understand that that baby, it was God's grace that he places that baby in the manger for us and for our salvation in order for him to grow up and live a life of obedience and to die and taste death so that you and I don't ever taste death. That's the plan behind the manger. Now, it's difficult to sit your kids down and talk to them about that. It's a little bit harder. You have to explain step by step. And sometimes Christmas is a joyous experience, and I'm glad it should be joyous because we've been saved by the fact that this baby came into the world. But it was fitting for him to do so. It was fitting for him to grow up the way he grew up, suffer the way he suffered, grow up in poverty the way he grew up, in order for him to accomplish his purpose. Now, if we go back to the Old Testament, something I like looking at what, what words the New Testament uses to describe some truths in the Old Testament, and I found two places where this word fitting is translating, or the LXX or the Greek version of the Old Testament translates this word in two parts of, of the psalm. In Psalm chapter 33, this is what is described of God. In 33 verse 1, it says, Praise befits or is fitting for the upright. What it's saying is that those who know God praise God. It befits Him. It's, it's wor- he is worthy to be praised. How many of you can say amen to that? God is worthy to be praised. It's fitting. I like the way the CSB trans- translates it when it says, Praise from the upright is beautiful, because that's another way of saying fitting. He also, the the writers of the the, the Psalter also say in 93 verse 5, that holiness befits your home. Holiness adorns your home in the CSB. What what it's saying is that all around Christ and the the Father, all around this, this God, It's holiness, it's perfection, and perfection fits the description. God is perfect, saying he is holy, we are not, and God is, and that is fitting to call God that. All of this in context of God becoming man. He leaves his perfect, holy throne, a person that is worthy to be praised, which is fitting for the creations to praise this God, this person leaves the throne and, it be, and he becomes fitted to be dressed like us in human rags. Now, if you and I were once heavenly beings we, and, and you understood the concept of being a human being, we would not 
want to condescend to that. We would not want to come down to that. We're like, why am I going to feel pain again? Why am I going to suffer again? Why am I going to suffer with, with my overweight again? Why am I going to go through all of this again? No, I'm not going to do so. Yet Jesus Christ does so because it was fitting for him to do it. Because there was a plan in place. And it goes deeper because Hebrews chapter 2, verse 10, describes that he was made perfect through suffering. So let's read this again. For it was fitting that he, and look at how the, the writer of Hebrews qualifies this. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, there it is, the, the writer of Hebrews is saying, this perfect creature that created all things, in bringing many sons to glory, should take the founder of their salvation, perfect through suffering. He should be made perfect through suffering. Now think about this in the context of Christmas. So we have Christmas coming up, like we mentioned, and this baby that we see it in the manger, the baby that you might have like set up with a little train set around him, and, 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 and you, have him, you have him visualized there. If you go to downtown, one of the things that I like to take my family to is going downtown to the water tower. In the basement of the water tower, they have this nice train set up. And in the little part in the back, they probably took it out already, but in the little part, they have a little manger set up. And it's like, oh, that's so cute. But this concept of this baby in growing to 30-plus years, 33-plus years, he was to be made perfect through suffering. And not only that, but it was fitting for him to do Jesus, be, the, the Son of Man, the Son of God, became a human being, took on all the identity of a human being, and in his human nature, he had to grow. He had to physically grow and learn and, and, and grow in knowledge and, and grow in obedience to God and even in his human nature be tempted and not sin. But he was always perfect and it was accomplished. His perfection was accomplished at the cross. What Jesus needed to do was live and die a perfect life. So Jesus was always perfect, but that perfection comes to conclusion at the cross. That's why we can say Jesus Christ was perfect, not only in his divinity, but in his humanity, did something that you and I could never do. You and I could never even be 10 minutes perfect. Because immediately within that first minute, you'll be thinking about things you shouldn't be thinking about. You and I can never get there, and Jesus Christ does it and accomplishes it at the cross through this process of growth in his human nature, gets to the cross, cross completely obedient, and suffers your sin, my sin, upon him. Jesus Christ can do it because he is God and because he is man. Well, Jonathan, that's, that's a little bit ridiculous because I wasn't even alive when Jesus was around. So how could he bear my sin? Well, we'll go back to John chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. God in the beginning, Jesus in the beginning is eternal. There is no time frame in the life of Jesus, in the Son life. There is no concept of time. He saw our imperfections and took our imperfections upon him. It wasn't just for that time. 
Now, I don't want to get into the Greek construction of all this and how, what it means by the verbs being described in, 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 the, in the Greek, but it, it implies that this was an action for all times, not just for the first century Jews and Greeks, not just for the guy that was to his left and to his right at the cross. This was for all time. And this perfection in Jesus Christ, this process was completed up until he gets to the cross. And that's why, my friends, you have these famous words that one day we'll get to in John chapter 19. Jesus Christ is hanging on the cross. And what does he say? It is... You got it, you got it, you can say it. Finished. You've seen the the passion. I think that comes out in the passion. But he uses these words, the exact verb that is used in Hebrews chapter 2, telioso, the telos, the finality, the, the fulfillment, the accomplishment, the finished product, the completed process. Jesus uses this exact words that is found in Hebrews. He uses it in John 19, verse 3, and he says it is finished. What is finished? The plan. What plan? To save us from damnation. It's done. It's accomplished. Nothing else needs to happen. No other work needs to be done to achieve this. Now, are we all antinomians? No. Are we all anarchists? No. Where we can say, well, it's done. It's accomplished. Woo! I got freedom. I can do whatever I want. I can live a life of pleasure, sin, and indulgence. The work has been done. Pastor Jonathan said it was finished. Amen. Hallelujah. I can sleep around. I can go to parties. I can be doing all this. Well, friends, a life of Christ, and we're going to get to the, this, this fourth reason later on, but we're going to realize that Jesus Christ lived like us so he could be our example. So unless you see Jesus going out there getting drunk and partying it up and, and, and identifying himself with a bunch of different people and then sleeping around, like you don't see that. That's not who he is. That isn't holiness. And we're going to get into that point further down the road, but I want you to realize this. Don't, don't live as an antinomian or against the law or against a, or a free reign uh, to do whatever you want. Jesus Christ died to save you from that sin. So there are addictions that we face. There are temptations that we have. There is this pull to do something wrong, but friends, because you know Christ, because you've experienced the grace of Christ, because you're here and you're hearing this, because you know, then you are responsible. You have to live a life that represents Christ in every aspect because he has saved us from our sin. In doing so, in this fulfillment, in this telos, in this accomplishment, what does Jesus do? He brings Many sons to glory. This mode becomes perfect. He is the perfect source of our eternal salvation in every way. I love that. In Hebrews chapter 5, we read it. He is the source of our eternal salvation. Where is your salvation? 
That's why we've been leaning on this for such a long time. Maybe, maybe you, you, you've been here and you're like, man, how much more are we going to be? I want to go to John chapter 2 already, man. Why are you, why are you here still? Uh, and I understand that. I get it. And I may be overdoing this or belaboring the point, but, but I can't minimize the work of Christ. This is Christ, bro. This is the work of... You don't have to worry about it, so you could rest and, and be in peace. If you've been saved by Jesus Christ, you can live in peace. He is the source of our salvation, and he has made a way for us. I love this. This is why I love studying scripture. Look at what it says in in verse 10 again in, in Hebrews. Let me read it to you. For it was fitting that he for whom by whom all things exist in bringing many sons to glory should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. So we've elaborated these befitting concepts, this perfect through suffering concepts, but, but what it says in the middle should make the founder of their salvation, the founder of our salvation. I, I, I wanted to dig in a little bit into that word because it appears several times in Hebrews. And it's, it's an important word. And this word founder is, is impressive. So what he's talking about is someone is the author of our salvation. Someone has formulated our salvation and Jesus Christ has executed that. Jesus Christ becomes that founder, becomes that author, but it doesn't just simply mean that. The word archegos is more than just a founder and more than just the author. And this is one of the only uh, times I disagree with the translation of the ESV and several other translations that I feel like they missed this point because the, the true meaning of archegos is found in, in him being the prince, the king, the ruler, the originator, and the pioneer. Now, all of this has in common, and this word is used in all secular Greek texts in the first and second century to describe a king that is on the battlefield leading the way for his army. And so here, we have what we can say in Jesus Christ, we have the captain of our salvation. So we have, when we use terminology to a certain level, it's like the author, okay, Jesus Christ planned this for us, or the founder, he was at the beginning of our faith, and it's planned, and it's all executed, cool. But, but something happens when we put Jesus Christ at the front. He is leading the way of our salvation. What is he doing? He's the trailblazer. I love that implication where he's cutting through enemy lines in order for us to reach the end. Friends, because you're saved doesn't mean that you have a perfect life. None of us here can sit down and be like, man, ever since I came to church, everything's been, been clouds and rainbows. Everything's have been, you know, uh, stands donuts with sprinkling on the top. Everything has been good. None of us can sit here and honestly say that ever since we've come to Jesus Christ and have come to church, that our lives has been smooth. That's, li- that's a lie. We all have hiccups. We all have difficulties. There's difficulties in our marriage. There's difficulties in raising our children. We, we, we are confronted by the attacks of the enemy time in and time again. We are bombarded. 
Life isn't easy. Some of us experience sickness. Some of us experience pain. Some of us have family members that have recently died. Some of us, have, we, we've had to go to the hospital and, and sit down with people that are going through pain. Some of we've seen the pain and the hurt. And, and, and we can't say, ever since I became a Christian, life is smooth sailing. That's not true. But what's going on here? He is the captain where he's making way through all of these attacks so that they do not destroy you. He is, sister, oh, I'm going to hide behind the path. Bro, don't hide behind me, bro. I'll be the first one to run. I'll run quick. I'm a chicken. So you want to stand behind your captain, the one who is the author and originator, but he's also your pioneer. He's making a way for you. He's standing in the front lines and he's combating for you. And all of this, four times this word is used in the New Testament. In Acts chapter 3, you can look this up. Acts chapter 3 verse 15. Acts chapter 5 verse 31. And in Hebrews chapter 12 verse 2, which is one of the most famous verses that uses this, where it says that he is the author and the finisher of our faith. But in reality, he is our captain of our faith. He is our true king. I never thought I'd say this in a preaching, but Kanye West is right. Jesus Christ is king. He is our king, and he is fighting for us. He is making a way. He is the founder and the pioneer of our lives. And friends, he does this in order to bring many sons to glory. What does that mean? Is it a place, a glory? Is, it, is he talking about heaven here? Is that, where, is that the whole purpose of, of Jesus Christ fighting for us and, and being king over us and leading the way? Is that the only purpose? Glory here doesn't mean location. It isn't a locative description. It isn't a place where all Christians will go. Rather, it is a state of being. Glory means salvation. We are saved by the work of Jesus Christ. We are saved. That's why, my friends, where do you get your salvation? Where is it? And who is it? Who, who's fighting for you? Are you fighting your own fights? Are you dealing with your own battles? Who is before you? Who are you surrendering to? If it's not Christ, it's something else. And you better pray that that something else can win the ultimate victory. But chances are, whatever that other is, will not win. You, you and I know this Completely. We've experienced the, the decline of, of, of the economy in, in 08, and, and it was one of the worst debacles of, of all time where I saw it for myself, being more conscious of it, being in my 20s. I got to see this for myself where, where big-time people with a lot of money in, in stocks and in 401ks and in IRAs, when all these big-time people, they had their security, they had their, 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 their final resting place in themselves, in their money, and when the stock market and when everything crashed, all of that was wiped away, and you couldn't, 
stop, you couldn't watch CNN for five minutes without realizing someone else just threw themselves out of a building. Because their security was in something that though was strong for a moment, it's never eternal. And some of us do that. We, 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 we accumulate for ourselves our security. It's either in things or it's in a person. And we sometimes hold our, our spouses accountable to that, where our spouse is our eternal salvation. And that's not fair because you're setting that person up for failure. So that's why when something goes wrong, it, it goes really wrong. It's not in our spouse, it's not in our children, it's not in our money, it's not in our, in our career choices, it's not in the degrees that we have hanging on our walls. Our eternal salvation rests on the source of our salvation, and you and I know where that source is. And who is it? Just say it, friends. Jesus Christ is our eternal source of our salvation. Next week, we're going to pick it up here. We're going to talk a little bit on how he guides us through this salvation. And then we're going to jump into the third reason on why Jesus became, why God became a, a person. So stand up this morning. Thanks for hanging in there these weeks. Give yourselves a round of applause. <laughs> But I, I want to pray for you all, and, 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 if, um, and if there's someone here that doesn't understand what it means to be saved, talk to us. We're here for you. Talk to me. Talk to Henry. Uh, Israel, if you're here, raise your hand. Look for Israel and, 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 and talk to one of us. We'd be more than willing to help you understand what this means. But Jesus Christ is the only way, the truth, and the life, and he is the only author of salvation. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you because you are our king. And sometimes we forget that as king, you fight. And you are fighting for us and for our salvation. You are the sustainer of our salvation. You are the one that strengthens us in our salvation. And because we can look to you and find in you the example of our salvation, we can rest confidently assured that even when death couldn't beat you, that even when we thought death had defeated you, you rose from the grave three days later and you conquered death itself. Not even death could hold you back. Therefore, we can rest confident in you. We can line up behind you and let you pave the way for our salvation. Thank you, Jesus Christ, for what you are doing in every single person's life here. Thank you for bringing many of them to glory. I didn't do it. The church didn't do it. You did it. And I pray, Lord, that you bring many more sons to glory this morning. In Jesus' name, we all pray. Amen. Amen.